Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast powered by Twisted Tea. We are kicking off our opponent preview series. Going to run through all of Ole Miss's relevant games, probably eight, nine previews with respect to Mercer and a couple others. Probably not going to do all 12, but all the SEC opponents and of course Tulane and Georgia Tech. We're going to kick it off today with Georgia and Jordan Hill of the Georgia 247 site, friend of mine, friend of the podcast, previewing the Bulldogs in 2023 and what state they might be in when the Rebels go to Athens this season. So buckle up. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation previewing the two-time reigning national champions. But before we get to that, though, I wanted to take a quick break to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by C Spire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with C Spire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable internet connection for you and your family. That's why C Spire Home Internet provides the most reliable internet service with 99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves on having the best customer service in the market. Their customer service is award-winning local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and Southern Alabama region. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit home internet plans. That's a lot of bits. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com today and use promo code RIPPY and check out for one month of free service. So my listeners, if you sign up for Cspire Home Internet, I have it at my place. It's terrific. I couldn't be doing this podcast without it. Can't be having internet going in and out. If you sign up today for Cspire Home Internet and use the promo code RIPPY, you get one month of free service. Take advantage of that today. Cspire, customer inspired. Podcast is also brought to you by RentTheSipOxford.com. Are you planning up to come to Oxford soon? Maybe if you've been slacking on reserving a place, RentTheSipOxford has you covered. Their Turnberry unit sleeps eight comfortably. It has amenities such as tennis courts, a pool, a spa. It is gated. It is less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus right there on Old Taylor Road, straight shot to Swayze Field, almost a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, and of course, almost a straight shot to the Grove as well. Go to rentthesipoxford.com to check availabilities. They have openings still for Vandy, ULM, and Mercer football weekends. This is a terrific place in a prime location, particularly on big weekends. It can be hard to find a place, or maybe you're just passing through and don't want to screw with the hotel on a random weekday. You need to check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. It is one of the best places to stay in town. Book your stay today. Go online, rentthesipoxford.com, and check availabilities. If you use the promo code RIPPYRIGHTS, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, rights, R-I-T-E-S. I don't know why I had to spell that part for you. You get 100 bucks off any two-night stay minimum. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. Great people, Bracken Ray, friend of the pod, would not steer you the wrong way. Check them out today, rentthesipoxford.com. All right, here is Jordan Hill on the 2023 Georgia Bulldogs. All right, it is season preview time, opponent preview time. We now welcome on friend of the pod, Jordan Hill of Dogs 247. It is uh, that time of year again. We were just talking about right before we started recording. Ole Miss and Georgia both about week into camp. I appreciate you joining us, man. How you been? Yeah, Brian, doing good. And uh, it's funny doing like the radio hits and stuff. You're like, yeah, it's so and so many days until the season. I, I can't believe it. I mean, it's less than a month. And, uh, you know, doing these previews, going out and watching a few practices here and there, going to turn around and the season's going to be here. 
what is the access like with Kirby? Like say like uh, Kiffin kind of does the save it approach for like coordinators don't really ever talk. They talk like once a year, but he's kind of, he was kind of open with practice at first. I think shut it off a little bit in year two and year three. I do it part-time now, so I'm not sweating it out on the field every day, but what's y'all's access like? It is few and far between. So Thursday will mark a week of fall camp. And to that point, we've gotten two different media sessions where we've been able to watch about 15 minutes of practice. So nothing too crazy. Definitely not like a full open practice, but a lot like you were just saying with Lane, you get the coordinators about once a year. And and Georgia's been lucky in these playoff runs they've had. That means they got to give us the coordinators. So we've talked to them a couple of times, but yeah, it's, it's pretty locked down, and then once we get into the season, we may get a few uh, viewing periods of practice along the way, especially early in the year, and then they tend to kind of lock it down and, and not uh, not let us watch very much. We'll get into the what I'm foreshadowing here in a second, but has that been pretty consistent throughout Kirby's time? I know you're only a couple years on the beat, but does that have anything to do with, I would say, some of the uh, extracurricular media attention they've gotten this offseason? No, he, he's been like that for the most part. I was actually still a student his first season, and I'm trying to remember. I mean, I think it was pretty locked down tight and uh, then the past two seasons. it's It's been nothing out of the ordinary, and especially at a situation like Georgia and, and with what Kirby has done, uh, if he's able to sell, hey, keeping people out, you know, we're, we're going to win, not letting people watch us. I mean, he's he's had a, a track record to back that up. So, uh, yeah, the I, I'm just at the point with stuff like that, you know, whatever we get to me is a bonus because a lot of coaches I know do not want people watching and are going to do their best to keep people out. It is kind of crazy to think about that, isn't it? I was actually a student his first year too, because I remember he came to Oxford. That was actually Hugh Freeze's last season. And like, it's like eight years later, I don't feel like I'm anywhere close to closely removed from college, but like, it's kind of crazy to think about it in that sense. It's like, I damn, I was actually a student too when his first year happened. And that was my first, I think that might be the first road game I ever covered was going to Oxford. I was still, I was a senior at Georgia and uh, that, that made for a very uh, quick uh, interviews after the game and, and heading back home. Cause uh, Hugh Freeze and the boys, they, they took it to, oh, Chad, Chad Kelly had an outstanding game against Georgia that night. My, how things have changed since you got a couple of national championships racked up um, since then. And it's, what's interesting to me is, the way that whole thing has been built and what was funny, obviously storyline after the national championship game last year is like, everyone counted us out. It's like, who actually predicted Georgia to go seven and five? Where does that come from? I know you guys are not asking questions every day, like doubting, you know, the number one team in the country. Do y'all sense that on a daily basis though? Or is that something that just comes out after they won the whole thing? I think it was made up. I mean, I think that there was a piece of it where it's like, okay, people don't expect us to, you know, win it again, which I, I, you know, I I thought they would be good. I thought they would probably lose to Alabama in the SEC title game was my prediction going into last year. But then, you know, you get a head coach that, and I get it because it's a way to motivate guys. Um, You know, I think he might've took it a little, he he got a little creative saying, oh yeah, these guys think y'all are going seven and five and all this stuff. Nolan Smith was really harping on that after the championship game. And it was like, man, if you can find somebody among (laughs) us who was saying, but I don't know if you saw Brian at media days, someone decided to to be a cut up with Kirby and was like, oh, and by the way, the guy beside me said, you guys are going seven and five. It wasn't me, but uh, you know, trying to go ahead and give them some motivation going into 2023. 
And I wonder what the bulletin board material is. Maybe it's the five guys that voted Vanderbilt to win the SEC and the SEC East. Maybe they're hanging that up on the wall. I imagine that as the years go by, it gets harder and harder to find any strain of legitimacy in the whole everyone's doubting us type of thing. I guess, though, we'll start with the quarterback piece of it, right? Because coming off back-to-back national championships, it is no longer the Stetson-Bennett era. And that's been fascinating because I thought, when the first year Georgia won the national title, I thought Stetson Bennett was fine. I thought he did his job very well. I thought he was very good for what they asked him to do. Contrast that to last year. I thought he was just kind of awesome. Like he was just really badass. Maybe it's the fact that he was 20 or 40 years old entering his like sixth or seventh year of college football. And he's like, I'm about as confident as I can possibly can be. But that is, I guess if there is a doubt about Georgia, it is probably the fact that, Hey, it is kind of a new era what is the quarterback thing? How do you see that shaking out? I know it's kind of a two-man race, but is there any lean toward who might actually take the opening snap? Do you think the thing will go into the season? How do you kind of view it? So to this point, it really looks like it's Carson Beck, who was the favorite going into spring. He was Stetson's backup last year, played a decent bit. I want to say he played in seven games in 2022 and and looked pretty good. A um, little bit bigger than Stetson, doesn't move as well, but it's got a bigger arm as a result. And, you know, Brock Vandegrift's been pushing him. There were times during spring football where you would hear a little bit more about Brock. And then at G-Day, the spring game, I mean, Carson Beck just blew him out of the water. And, I mean, had an outstanding game. You could kind of tell Brock Vandegrift was sort of feeling the moment. I mean, you could tell he was kind of double-clutching a couple times. You know, he was really sort of understanding how big that moment was. And, you know, Kirby's not going to name a starting quarterback. I would be surprised week of UT Martin. Someone could ask him point blank and he's going to say, well, you know, we still we still got to evaluate, you know, how things are going. And But I, I think it's going to be Carson Beck. And he's a really gifted player. I mean, he was a four-star coming out of Jacksonville, Florida, uh, out of high school. And a guy that's waited his turn, which, you know, is uh, truly remarkable. Honestly, at this point, both he and Brock have waited around trying to win this job. Um, what I'm really fascinated to see, you know, I think it's going to be Carson Beck as a starting quarterback, uh, but how they handle these first few games, because if you look at Georgia's schedule, Brian, it's UT Martin, it's Ball State, you do have South Carolina, which is going to be a challenge, and then you have UAB, and part of me is like, you know, those are games where let's say Carson is the starter, are they kind of measured with how split the reps are? You know, if they get up big, do they still say, we're going to roll Carson out there so we can avoid, well, you know, Brock wound up having as many attempts as Carson did. Is there a little bit of a competition here? Uh, I don't know that Kirby will spend too much of his brain power on that sort of thing. Uh, But I think once they get into this season, I think they're going to be rolling with one guy. And uh, at this point, I would be surprised if it is not Carson Beck. And you mentioned that Beck's waited around uh, for the opportunity to take the job. And like by this modern standard of the NIL and the transfer portal and all of that and guys moving around every year, you could probably argue a little bit the same thing about Vandergraaf, just the sheer fact he was a 2021 kid who's still at his first school, right? I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, even if we were talking about it five years ago, but that really is kind of the case. And so I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way. For Ole Miss, for example, like Jackson Dart, 
I think people think he's going to end up winning the job. You had Spencer Sanders come in as a grad transfer. It's like, well, what actually happens to him? Does he go somewhere else? Does he have enough credits to graduate? I do not work in the Ole Miss admissions office. I am not qualified to answer such questions. But from a Georgia perspective, if you'll ever, like, has there ever been any sort of inkling that the guy who does not win the job, if they somehow name one internally before the season, that the guy who does not win it will go somewhere else? Or is that kind of set in stone that both guys will probably be there for the remainder of the season? I think at this point you're going to see them all stand pat. Now you just, you never know today, but going back to the G day game and the scrimmage, we really did wonder if Brock Vandegrift may decide to leave. And he was asked that after the scrimmage, he was made available and he said, you know, I'm staying here. I'm going to compete this thing out. And to me at this point, I would understand why a guy would decide to leave, but let's say specifically Brock Vandegrift, if he does not win this job, uh, you know, if you look at Georgia, in 2022, or let's say 2021 and 2020, they went into both of those seasons with one guy in mind as the starting quarterback, and then wind up not being the starter. 2020, they go get Jamie Newman from Wake Forest. They think, all right, he's going to be our starter. He's going to help us out. COVID happens. Jamie decides he's going to opt out and just focus on the NFL draft. They start the season against Arkansas with Dwan Mathis, uh, he of uh, Temple fame uh, since he left Georgia, and it does not go well. And then they throw this former walk-on named Stetson Bennett in the game, and he kind of rescues them. Well, then you go to 2021, and I'll just never forget, I was still covering Auburn at the time, uh, but JT Daniels speaks at SEC Media Days. You check uh, the uh, uh, Heisman odds after he speaks. All of a sudden, JT Daniels is the Heisman favorite. You know, it might have been for two or three days, whatever it was. Uh, he starts the season as a starting quarterback. He gets hurt in like the second game, and Stetson Bennett comes in, and the rest is history. So I would think from that perspective, you would say, look, I'm this far in. I've already gone through fall camp. If I go somewhere else, I'm not going to start this year. Let's just ride it out. Let's keep pushing Carson Beck. Let's see what happens. And, you know, one hit on a guy can lead to a guy going to the bench and the backup getting in. Uh, we've seen it before these last few years, and there's nothing to say if that happens that a guy like Brock Vandegrift couldn't go in there and have success. What has separated Beck from Vandegrift? Why is he the prohibited favorite after spring? I think the biggest thing is cons consistency, and that's something that Kirby talked about, I think, about a lot last season with Stetson, with how he felt Stetson had improved. And the biggest thing he said was that Stetson had gotten better at making decisions. He said, we can't have boneheaded plays. We can't lose possessions. And that's the biggest thing that I think separates the two is, you know, if you go back to that spring game, uh, Brock had a very bad interception where he just sort of double clutch and throws and it's picked off by Tyke Smith. Um, I just think that they trust Carson a little bit more. He is a, a year older than Brock. He's had a, another year at Georgia. I think that they see with him um, that he understands what they're looking for him to do on offense. And at the same time, got a big arm, is able to air it out and can move a little bit. I think Brock is more agile of the two. Uh, but for as big as Carson is, he can take off scrambling. I think it might have been the Oregon game he came in last year uh, where he had a pretty decent little run. So I think you consider both of those quarterbacks. I think if they were put in a spot where they had to play Brock, they would feel okay. Uh, but I think with the way Carson operates the offense and just understanding what the expectations are of the coaching staff, I think they just feel more comfortable with the older guy and with the guy that uh, has waited his turn and seems like he's up for the challenge. If there was one, I guess, doubt entering last year for Georgia is 
whatever version of this massive recruiting operation that uh, Kirby and Georgia has built, you figure 2022 might have been a little bit of a quote-unquote rebuilding or transition year for the defense, and then they win the national title going away. But it does seem like on paper that this Georgia defense will be even better than it was last year, which I imagine for the rest of the SEC is a pretty scary thought. But do you kind of share that sentiment and why? I think they're in a good spot. I think the thing that I got to see to really go all in on, yeah, this defense will be better, is outside linebacker where they lost Nolan Smith and Robert Bill, two guys who wound up getting drafted, uh, two guys who were both seniors last year who had waited around and were willing uh, to stick it out and wind up you know, contributing in a big way. And then interior defensive line, because they don't got a Jalen Carter. And, you know, when you get a guy like that, I mean, he's just so disruptive. And not only does he get his share of tackles and his share of tackles for loss, but he opens up for so many other guys. I mean, I think about like a Michael Williams, a defensive end who was a true freshman last year. He winds up leading the team in sacks. Now, does he do that if Jalen Carter's not on the interior? Probably not. So I think that they've got to have one at outside linebacker. They're very young, uh, but they got talented guys. They just need some of those inexperienced guys to rise to the occasion. And then to me, interior defensive line, it's sort of a situation where it's quantity over quality. Now I say that they've still got four stars and five stars. They just don't have a total game record like Jalen Carter. If they can get those guys, I think even more so between those two interior defensive line, if those guys can rise to the occasion, I do think that they could have a defense that's even better than last year's. Is there a doubt you have on the offensive side of the football outside of quarterback? Right now it's running back, and it's really just because of health. Uh, it was a question going through spring, uh, and then we're a week into fall camp, and Kendall Milton, who was tabbed to be the number one running back, dealing with a hamstring issue, and it was a hamstring issue that shut him down in the spring. He's a guy that has a lot of potential and has looked good at times. Uh, he didn't have as many carries as some of the other SEC backs last year, but average yard per carry uh, was very, very impressive. Uh, well, he's hurt again, and we saw him at practice earlier this week working off to the side. He was not with his position group. You have that. You have Branson Robinson, who's a rising sophomore, who also missed the end of spring and just got back to working. Um, and you've got another group of Andrew Paul at running back, who is a redshirt freshman who tore his ACL a year ago. He's still working back. They've got real questions at running back, and they are in a good spot. They've got a number of options, uh, but Kendall was going to be their top running back, and now you've got a big question. You already had the question of if he could stay healthy, and now you know we're still just you know three or four weeks away from the start of the season, and you're watching him work on the sideline. Uh, Robinson, Madison, Mississippi kid. Most people listening all too familiar with him. He seemed kind of Georgia from start to finish, never really much considered the Mississippi schools. But if that's your main concern offensively going into the season, I mean, look, Ole Miss last year had Quinshawn Judkins. That, you know, the offseason, I would say transfer or signing or whatever you want to call it, was Zach Evans. And it turned out that this freshman from Pike Road, Alabama, just turned out to be one of the better running backs in the SEC. But that is still also, and you're seeing at the NFL level, a pretty expendable position. So if that's like kind of the number one question mark, they're probably fine, don't you think? I mean, look, as long as you have as many able and healthy bodies, or at least a competitive amount of able and healthy bodies, somebody's probably going to emerge because with that kind of offensive line, that kind of talent you've recruited at running back, even if a guy's not proven, they're probably still going to be pretty damn good there. 
Oh, definitely. And I mean, they've even gotten buzzed from a walk on Cash Jones out of Texas. I mean, they've talked wow. about him a decent bit. So it's like if he if he winds up having to get in the mix, I think they're OK. But, uh, you know, ideally, if you've got a new starting quarterback, you want a running game you can rely on. And I do think they'll still be OK. But it certainly helps Carson Becker, whoever wins this job. You got Brock Bowers back. You've got a receiver room that I think is as deep as I've ever seen Georgia have a room. I mean, they got Lab McConkey, Marcus Rosamy, Jack Saint, and Arian Smith back. And they added Dominic Lovett from Missouri and Ra Ra Thomas from Mississippi State and also signed three guys out of high school. Um, so yeah, I mean, you would you would want those running backs healthy, but they got a number of options there. And uh, they've got a ton of pass catchers that they shouldn't be hurting, even if a guy like Kendall Milton has to miss a little time. Over here in our neck of the woods, Mississippi State goes through a coaching change because of the tragic passing of Mike Leach. Zach Arnett's building out his own staff. And I remember for a brief period there around January, there was some Mike Bobo buzz, which was not received well if the uh, free message boards I had access to at the time were any sort of indication Todd Munkin leaves to go to the Baltimore Ravens. I guess we'll start there. God, that it had some NFL experience before. Was that a huge shock? What? How was that news received? It wasn't a shock. It was something that we were all kind of monitoring because his name came up with the Tampa Bay Bucks, and the Ravens had been mentioned a little bit. And with Tampa Bay, just from the outside looking in, I kept looking at that opening and saying it, it doesn't make sense for him to take this job because Brady, by that point, had already said he's retiring. You've got Todd Bowles, who is on the hot seat going into that situation. It's like, is he going to leave Georgia back-to-back national champions to go coach Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask? It's like, I, I don't know that that's going to happen. But then you saw the smoke of Baltimore. And just when he was mentioned for interviewing, it was like, okay, this is a job that makes a whole lot of sense for Todd. You've got Lamar Jackson. You know, they they wind up going and getting Odell Beckham, who he coached with the Browns during his stint there in Cleveland. Uh, so it was a job to definitely watch. And then uh, that it was kind of cruel. They announced that on Valentine's Day. So, you know, all us sports writers <laughs> trying to have one day, you know, to ourselves. And, uh, well, all of a sudden, okay, Todd's gone. And what's funny is that, you know, I'm getting together a list. Okay, here's who – potentially they could hire and then we hear very quickly there there's not going to be a search they've got the guy that's going to replace Todd Monk and he's already on staff and his name is Mike Bobo I would put Bobo in terms of public perception in like the Chad Morris category where it's like all right this guy hot name 2010 2012-ish but not a great track record since how was that hire an internal promotion received I imagine some of that is probably palated a lot easier just from the sheer fact that the program has won back-to-back national championships. Kirby probably knows what he's doing, but let's just, for example, like if Ole Miss or Mississippi State hired Mike Bobo, people would be like, what the hell is going on here? How was that received from the Georgia fan base standpoint? It was pretty negative at first, and I do think <laughs> it's a situation that it's probably grown on people a little bit, especially as you went through the spring and kind of heard Look, he's not changing this offense. They're using the same terminology they use uh, with Todd Munkin. Um, you know, the biggest thing that we've heard from guys like Brock Bowers and Lad McConkey, guys like that, is well, he's adding wrinkles to this this offense, or you know, he's just changing little things. You know, though I will admit, I really at G Day, I wanted them to line up in I form and just and just freak everybody out. Just you know, go under center and hand it to a fullback. There might have been a riot if they would have done that. But I will say this. You know, I think there's plenty of criticism of Mike that is warranted. Uh, But as successful as Georgia was these past few years with Todd Munkin uh, as offensive coordinator, 
He never broke the scoring record at Georgia. That was Mike Bobo's last offense as far as points per game. So you think about how successful they were, especially last season. I think they averaged something like 41.3 points per game. Couldn't touch what they did in 2014 when Hudson Mason was quarterback. And, and no disrespect to Hudson Mason, but uh, he, he was not exactly a an up-and-coming NFL, you know, going-to-be quarterback. I mean, he did a lot um, with not very much. Even though you did have guys like Todd Gurley and Keith Marshall, they weren't totally devoid of talent. But I talked to David Andrews this offseason. He's a, a center from Georgia that has played in the NFL for quite a while with the Patriots. And he said, uh, sort of the point I was just making, you know, we weren't devoid of talent when Mike was there back, you know, the first, his first stint as offensive coordinator. He said, but if you compare the talent he's working with now compared to then, he said, there's no comparison. It's just so much more talent. And, uh, you know, I think uh, one thing that helps from the fan perspective is that a guy like Kirby Smart at this point has earned people's trust. And I've made this point too. If he didn't think Mike Bobo was the guy for the job, yeah, they went to school together. They've been friends for a long time. Um, but as much as Kirby might like Mike Bobo, I'll tell you something he likes more, and that's winning. And, and if he thought it wasn't going to work, he, he wouldn't bring in a guy that was going to set the program back. You mentioned the offense not changing. Kirby's a defensive guy, but as you mentioned, they've been friends for a long time. They got something in place that works. How much of that do you think is kind of a Kirby mandate of like, hey, let's not Let's not reinvent the wheel here type of thing. I know they're a little bit similar in the way they think about football and approach. You mentioned kind of the hoping they go in the off formation and hand it to a fullback just to screw with message boards during the spring. But like how much of that is just like, hey, we're not going to do this versus like Bobo doesn't want to do it, if that makes sense. Well, I think that there's an understanding of what's been working. And I think the biggest thing that helps Mike and probably also kind of kept people from totally losing their minds uh, back in February when he was promoted was the fact that he was on staff. He was an offensive analyst last season. He got to see how everything worked. And I think something that adds to it really benefits Mike he coached with Stacey Searles the first time he was Georgia's offensive coordinator. He coached with Brian McClendon the first time he was the offensive coordinator. So they understand how things have evolved since that first time that that uh, Mike was the offensive coordinator. And Mike got to see up close sort of to what you were just saying, Brian. You know, he knows what works. And he understands with this personnel that they're working with and the talent they've added – things to do and ways to attack defenses. So, you know, Mike's a really smart guy. I think that um, he's had some uh, situations in the past that didn't work out like people hoped. You know, his time as a head coach at Colorado State, his short stints at South Carolina and Auburn. Um, but I think he's got a lot of talent to work with. I don't think, um, you know, Kirby turning the offense over to him is going to be a sense of, all right, we're going to kind of throw it back and, and kind of be conservative I think that Mike got to see a year of this is what this offense can do and, and what it's what the potential is. And now you're running the show and uh, let's try to maximize it. We'll get back to Jordan Hill in just a second. Before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is now brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for all college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering a perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. 
Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgivable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked at the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modding mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. We got the Hall of Fame game up on a Thursday night. Football season is just around the corner. Go ahead and sign up for Skybox's NFL and college football picks package. They're the only way to profit in the long run. They're the professionals. You sign up. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can go all sports. You can go sports specific, whether it's NFL or college, whatever the case may be. I would just be an all-year, all-around access pass member. You'll save yourself money, and boom, they'll send you picks on a color-coded spreadsheet based off of unit, and you are more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. You're never going to make money this college football season. Just accept it now by going off your own liens and without having a system. These guys are the professionals. It is all based off of math. Do yourself a favor and actually profit this college football season by signing up with skyboxsportspicks.com. Use that promo code RIPPY and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue in Oxford. Probably going to talk to Greg for a podcast later this week. Go in, see him, be a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrites.substack.com. You're about to get another newsletter from me, but you also get discounted meats. Right now, it's a six, three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Just go show Greg Proof a subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go all find your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. A crown jewel of Oxford, all kinds of delicious sausages, seafood, incredible cuts of meat. It's the best place in the world if you want to throw something on the grill. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Jordan Hill. You've covered SEC football for quite a while now. Where does Brock Bowers rank on the most fun guys to watch play? I know that's a weird question for a tight end, but every time I see him, I'm like, Jesus, this guy looks different than any other person I've seen play this position in a while. What's that been like to cover? Does he stick out on a play-by-play basis when you're watching? He is definitely the number one tight end, and I would probably have to sit and think of other guys. I mean, I you know, off the top of my head, I think of guys like Todd Gurley and even Tank Bigsby when I covered Auburn. I mean, like more running backs just because they could break plays, and all of a sudden you'd be going, wow. And I think that's a big testament to Brock being a tight end and being in that. Uh, you know, my thing with him, uh, I'll always go back to the South Carolina game last year where I think he had three touchdowns. And, I mean, it looked like a video game, Brian. It looked like nobody – it looked like their best opportunity was to just tackle him and take the 15 yards on the route. I mean, because they just, they had no answer for him and he's gotten a few carries here and there. Uh, if it wasn't an injury situation, I may ask Kirby, Hey, you thinking about giving Brock some carries? Uh, I don't, I don't know if Kirby would really enjoy that question at this point in camp, but he's a guy that, um, you know, we got to talk to Todd Hartley, who, his, who is his position coach and he just said he's the hardest working guy I've ever uh, coached and and really talked about his competitiveness. And you think about what he's accomplished. I mean, had an argument to win the John Mackey Award as a true freshman, doesn't win it then, wins it last year, has been Georgia's leading receiver the last two years. If there's ever been a guy that's like, I'm in kind of ease through this rep or, you know, I'm not really feeling it at practice. You know, it's Brock Bowers, but he's just not that guy. And I think that it's a big benefit for Georgia that he is that way. And they and they are really loaded 
uh, talent wise at tight end behind him. They've got uh, Oscar Delp, who's going to be a sophomore, who was the top tight end in his class, and two true freshmen in Pierce Sperlin and Lawson Lucky. And they get to learn from that guy. And Todd Hartley talked a lot about that, you know, the example he sets. Uh, Brock's going to be huge. You know, I expect this will be his last year at Georgia because he will be a first round pick when we're in April next year. Uh, but he's going to set a standard that those other tight ends, I think, are going to pick up and run with because they got to see what he was capable of doing and uh, how he just went all out every chance he got. Something you said there, this is a complete pivot, but it made me think of the last year's national championship game. I remember watching and thinking, okay, Georgia's probably going to win this going away, but how long can TCU make this a game? And you talk about a video game where one team had their settings on like the rookie mode versus whatever the hard one is. It's been a while since I played NCAA 14. Uh, hopefully that's coming back soon. But it really was kind of jarring for you covering that game. The way that went, were you surprised at all? Because I, I just, I figured again, Georgia would probably win the thing going away, but just like the fact that TCU didn't even like muster any semblance of resistance in terms of even just like forcing a third down, that was still pretty jarring to me to watch. Did anything about the way that played out surprise you? It's one of those things where in hindsight, it's like, yeah, man, all the signs were there that this was coming. I think I had Georgia by like two touchdowns. Like I thought Georgia would win, but it, it would be competitive. But the media day that we had with both teams and they kind of one team comes in. I think TCU came in first, you know, for about an hour. Then Georgia came in. And it's like there's a brief moment where you kind of see one coming in, one coming out. And you could just tell then that Georgia was just so much bigger than TCU. And and that was certainly a sign that, hey, maybe this thing's going to get out of hand. And I, I just can't really get over that game. The only comparison I have to, to that is like covering high school football. And it's like the first round of the playoffs. And you go and you're watching a game and it's like by like the first quarter, you're like, okay, this other team could just name the score. Like we're done here. My story's already in the, you know, we could go ahead and go to press with this thing because it's over. Uh, It was just incredible the way not only the Georgia offense moved around, uh, the defense was attacking. Javon Bullard had two interceptions and a fumble recovery in the first half alone. Uh, And it was like the the couple times where it was like TCU could have had a shot at sticking around. Uh, I know there was like a third and long at one point in that first half and Stetson takes off running and picks up the first down. It was, it was like a, something I've never seen. And, and you, you know, I'll be writing stories even like in the spring and just mention, you know, that championship game. And I'm looking at, them like, they really won that game by 58. I mean, they won that by a margin that is bigger than any game in bowl history. I, I, I cannot uh, believe that that is the case. It, it was, it was a very bizarre thing to watch play out. And yeah, it, it really was. That's a great example with the whole high school thing where you just get to a game and you're like, all right, this is actually not going to be competitive from start to finish. I can write the story and then we'll just kind of coast the rest of the time. Definitely been there, done that. Georgia's schedule is fascinating to me. They play four straight home games. Wouldn't call it the stiffest of competition. It is UT, Martin, Ball State. South Carolina could be a challenge and then UAB. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. How bored are you guys going to be before September 30th when they go to Auburn? This is kind of how Ole Miss was a little bit last year. It's like the first four or five games. It's like, all right, this is more confirmation bias than anything. What like With a new quarterback and all of that, how do you kind of view those first four games versus what they're going to get into in the back two-thirds of the season? 
One thing I do like to point out, Georgia did have a game on the schedule to play at Oklahoma, which would have beefed that up a little bit. That would have been week two with Oklahoma joining the conference. The SEC nixed that and said, look, you know, you guys aren't playing. I think there was a couple of other series that get, got canceled. I think Tennessee might have had one. Uh, but, yeah, those, those first that first month, um, the biggest thing is going to be uh, definitely overanalyzing the quarterback situation. Like you can go ahead and, and book that, Brian, that that's going to happen. And uh, I mean, that's going to be the biggest thing we got to watch for. And really that and injuries. I mean, that that's the biggest thing. And what makes it interesting, you know, not to downplay that South Carolina game, because that is going to be a challenge, but it's at home. But you look at that Auburn game at the end of September, the first time whoever wins this starting job is going to be playing on the road. You look, I covered Auburn for a couple years. Jordan Hare is as loud of a stadium as I've ever heard. Even if Auburn is a six or seven win team, they can give teams trouble. Um, That's going to be a fascinating close to September, having to go there having to beat an Auburn team that I don't think has as much talent uh, as they're going to need to compete in the West year in and year out. But they have added several really interesting guys from the portal. Uh, It will be a challenge for whoever wins this starting job, and it'll definitely make the end of September a whole lot more interesting than the the, uh, two or three Saturdays that precede it. You're dead on about the Jordan Hare party. That's like the loud stadium that never gets brought up in conversation. Like people talk about Bryant Denny, the swamp, obviously Death Valley. But man, you get that place. I'll never forget 2019. Ole Miss was there, kind of played over their heads a bit, and they had a drive to win the game with John Rice Plumley, the whole Rich Rod days. I'm sure everyone out there listening is just fantasizing over that. But that last drive, I was sitting there on the field and I was like, gosh, damn, this place is loud. Like, I wasn't surprising by any means, but I was just one of those things where it's like, it doesn't get the credit for what it is. I think, don't get me wrong, I've never bet it. After watching that first year at Ole Miss in 2012, where Freeze won seven games and almost nine with what he was working with at Ole Miss, I will never bet against first year who Freeze. But I do think the talent disparity is so great that that probably won't be a ton of a challenge for Georgia, other than the fact that they're going on the road. But the weird part about the schedule after that is you get Kentucky in Sanford Stadium, which changes the dynamics of that game greatly versus if it were at Kentucky and then Vanderbilt. And I think there's like a buy in between. There's a decent chance you don't actually know what this Georgia team is until like Halloween, correct? Yeah, no, I think you've nailed it. And again, it's like if that Kentucky game was in Lexington, maybe it'd be a little more enticing. And they gave Georgia pretty good game last year i believe it was 16 to 6 it was probably the worst game stetson had in that season uh and you know i i'm kind of high on kentucky going in this season you know i've got them third in the east which isn't anything crazy but i really like devin leary and i think having liam cohen back as offensive coordinator is pretty big but yeah i mean you know and then even you you go past um that vanderbilt game and then the bye week I don't think Florida is going to be very good. You're, I don't care what kind of salesman you are. You are not selling me on Graham Mertz being a very good SEC quarterback, especially with the questions I got elsewhere at Florida. So you're sort of looking to November and that Ole Miss game that I think is going to be really fascinating in, in Athens and then Tennessee at Tennessee. And uh, it's one of those things, too. You know, some of these teams may surprise and some of these teams may wind up um, shocking us and being more competitive. But I've harped on it all offseason that Georgia could be in a situation where if you go 11-1 and with this schedule, you may not be making the playoff. I mean, you may have to put on a show in the SEC title game because it's very realistic that other than 
beating like a Tennessee or, or beating an Ole Miss team that I do think will be pretty good, uh, you're kind of scratching to to find something that's impressive that you know you can put on a resume and say, okay, we belong in the playoff because of this win. I think that's incredibly well said. And I think that probably if that ends up being the case, get the benefit of the doubt because they're the two-time reigning national champions with this God God uh, smack of talent on the roster. But that is a weird – like it's a weird way when I was going through this uh, schedule earlier kind of prepping for this interview. It's like, look, if Ole Miss is going to make that game interesting, I'm going to have to see a few games just to see it because they have so many new transfers. I, th- I kind of like what they have generally on offense, a lot of question marks on defense. But I can't sit here and tell you today that Ole Miss has the horses to make that game an interesting game in the fourth quarter. So you really go through the whole schedule. I'm not sold on Florida either. I don't buy the Graham Mertz thing. Um, Mizzou just never really going to move the needle for me as far as even though ironically last year that was actually a wild ass game that Georgia would have could have should have lost was probably the closest one there but it's honestly you go through this 12 game schedule and it's like all right if they can somehow win in Knoxville where they'll probably be favored but that'll be the closest line of the season it's like that's kind of your year which is a very weird way to look at a 12 game college football season but that's kind of the case is it not it's like Tennessee and maybe who else surprises you no, I mean, I think you've nailed it. And it's one of those things that I guarantee you if they play a close game like the Missouri game last year, I can go I could go ahead, Brian, and write out what Kirby Smart's got to say. And it's going to be about how the media had, you know, you guys just rolled out the red carpet. We were going undefeated. Well, look what happened. And, you know, South Carolina could give them a game. I think that they could be, you know, the way they finished last season was very, very impressive. But Go look at the scores of Georgia versus South Carolina in the Shane Beamer era. I mean, it's a bloodbath. They haven't even been close. Uh, Missouri, maybe they play them close again, but you don't have the benefit of playing in Columbia this time around. I think Georgia's going to take care of that one. Again, we talked about Kentucky, Florida. Like we said, I'm not convinced. Vanderbilt's Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt has, I think, the last two times – they have played Georgia. Georgia's won a combined 117 to nothing. Like it, it's just not even been the same sport that they're playing. Um, so you you look at the end of the month, uh, the end of the regular season. You look at Ole Miss and Tennessee and say, you know, what situation is Georgia going into those games? And you got to think too, at that part of the year, how healthy is Georgia? Because if you're dealing with significant injuries, playing probably two of the better teams on your regular season schedule. I mean, that, those are going to be pretty challenging situations to walk into. Do you view depth as more of an issue than Georgia's had to deal with in the previous two seasons? Because I remember there was a point in 2021, I can't remember exactly when it was, but they were just machine rolling through the SEC in mid-October. And I kind of looked at, I, I can't remember exactly what point of the year it was, but I was like, damn, they're missing three, four guys. Like they're actually going to get a couple guys back. And the depth just kind of seemed endless at that point. If there is one flaw in this Georgia operation besides the under uncertainty at quarterback is it the is it the fact that there's maybe not as quite as much depth across the board as there has been the last two years it's hard to argue that because they're actually in pretty good shape I mean I look at like offensive line I think they feel pretty comfortable if they had to get seven or eight different guys among those starting five receiver I do think is as deep as I've ever seen it we talked about running back there's a question but there are a number of options you got three scholarship quarterbacks Interior defensive line may be a question where you could run into some issues. Elsewhere, you've got guys and you've got talent. They're just really young. I think specifically outside linebacker, what we talked about, three true freshmen, and they were really highly rated. Uh, Damon Wilson, Gabriel Harris, and Samuel Mpemba. 
uh, inside linebacker. You've got your two leading tacklers back from last year in Smile Munden and Jamon Dumas Johnson. Uh, and you've got three true freshmen there as well, C.J. Allen, Raylan Wilson, and Troy Bowles. And then you look elsewhere, cornerback is pretty young besides Kamari Lassiter. Uh, safety, they are, they've got a good mix of experience and young guys. Uh, so I think they're in pretty good shape, Brian, when it comes to depth. But it's definitely a lot of young guys. And if they got into situations where, say, at outside linebacker, a guy like Chaz Chambliss, who is a junior, who wound up playing a good bit last season once Nolan Smith got hurt. If he gets hurt, they are super, super young there. And, again, they're talented, uh, but they'd be unproven. And depending on when that happened in the season, it, it could be a real vulnerability. Hitting on something I alluded to earlier, from an off-season, off-the-field new standpoint, I wouldn't classify it as a great one for Georgia so far. You obviously had the very tragic accident with Jalen Carter and the couple of staffers involved with that. How is that – played into this off season. Look, I've, I've known the deal before. You're not exactly going to get just forthright information from uh, basically what is a uh, public relations cartel in terms of college athletics, but how is that, is that affected anything as far as going into the season at all? What has that been like to cover? I'm just curious how you kind of contextualize that going into this year. I think the biggest thing is it's put a lot of things in perspective for some of the players. And I think Kirby smart too, because Kirby's a guy that's always all football. And you try to, you know, if you get a TV reporter in an interview that wants to ask something funny, like, Hey, you know, it's Halloween, you know, what's your favorite? He's not going to answer. I mean, he's going to talk about (laughs) football, but I do think, you know, I mean, that car crash that you mentioned, uh, Devin Willick, an offensive lineman, he was killed in the wreck. And, you know, Kirby's talked a few times just about losing a kid like that. There's a picture from the national title game of Andrew Smart, Kirby's youngest son, uh, on Devin's shoulders. And, you know, not long after that, he gets killed in a car crash. I do think that it's put a lot of things in perspective for guys. And, you know, to hear uh, some of the veterans like uh, center Cedric Van Pran, uh, who's talked about, you know, wanting to represent the university the right way um, and keeping in mind, you know, how everyone is looking at Georgia and uh, some of the criticisms, some fair and, and some unfounded, um, you know, trying to represent the university in the right way. Uh, so it, it's been a situation where I think for the players and the coaches, there's been a lot of off the field talk that they weren't, you know, they, did, they didn't sign up for that they didn't want. Um, but it comes with the territory with some of the stuff that's happened. And I think on the whole, a lot of these guys have handled the situation well. I think about Jamon Dumas Johnson, the inside linebacker. He was arrested about a week before that January 15th car crash for reckless driving. And we got to talk to him at the start of fall camp. Very accountable, took uh, responsibility for what happened. And, you know, I, I was telling people after the fact, you know, obviously he messed up. Um, but I could not imagine being, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, screwing up like that, which he did, uh, but then having to go into a room with a bunch of people like me, a bunch of reporters asking you questions about it. But uh, I was really impressed with how he handled that situation. And I do think for a lot of these guys um, that they have grown in certain ways because of the questions that they've been asked. Uh, It's been uncomfortable for some of them sometimes, but uh, I think on the whole, um, you know, people have been pretty forthright with what's been going on and understand, you know, they may not like some of the questions, but they're there for a reason. 
not to go layers deep into the whole AJC thing and that, how that played out, but I'm just curious. You mentioned the response from a couple of players. What's Kirby's defense been for someone that doesn't follow it on a day-to-day basis? What is his argument against it being a, I feel like the headline is it is a cultural issue or I held that might've been the exact headline in the AJC. I don't really know. What has been his defense against the fact that they have a cultural problem? I think the biggest thing, you know, they refuted some of the sexual assault reporting, which wound up, Costing um, a guy a job, right? Yes, yes, at the AJC, and and they wind up putting out a story, sort of explaining, you know, their process and things they needed to change. But one of the things that I ha- do think has been fairly reported, not just by the AJC, is some of the uh, behind the wheel issues, you know, speeding and excessive speed. And Kirby has talked about that it needs to be cut out. I mean, that they can't, you know, there is no excuse for it. And, uh, you know, it's been something that, again, going back to Cedric Van Pran, he talked about, you know, I'll be out with friends. And if I think they're going to make a mistake, I'm like, hey, man, just ride with me. Um, They have been criticized and and rightfully so, because there's been some super speeder situations. And again, you're coming off uh, a situation in January where two people died, a 20 year old and a 24 year old. Um, Kirby's talked about the fact that there's been speeding in the Georgia program forever and there probably always will be and and I do get that I mean these are 18 19 20 year old kids and a lot of them driving really fast cars um, you know you're gonna have those situations but you know he's been pretty forthright on not making excuses about it um, it's just a matter of it getting through to some of these players because at the end of the day you just do not want a situation like we had on January 15th you don't want to be talking about a football player or a staffer or a coach anyone like that and having to do so in the past tense it's very strange too because they all all of the incidents have a similar vibe to it and it's not necessarily exclusively a georgia's thing Ole miss had two kids this offseason that one led to a dismissal another one led to who knows what but likely a suspension and they were both like traffic related things where it's not even just speeding it's like you know it's 55 you're going 95 it's it's a very i don't know if it's like a new phenomenon but it's been very strange to see the amount of like speeding drag racing type accidents in the last like couple years involving Georgia and college football programs. I don't even know what to make of it, but it's just something I've noticed. Yeah. And, and my thing, I always try to be fair to those guys. I mean, again, it's stupid. It's something that's very dangerous could get somebody killed, but I mean, Brian, I would have made similar mistakes. If you I was a disaster at 19 years old in college, in case you needed some backup there. <laughs> yeah. But Brian, if I was driving a little crappy Chevy S10 and would have done some stupid stuff. You give me like a charger or something like that. But at the same time, you would hope, you know, one, to learn from an accident that wound up costing two people their lives, but two, to see your other teammates get in trouble, you know, getting arrested, seeing whatever discipline. Uh, Jamon Dumas Johnson was asked what his discipline was, and uh, he just kind of shook his head. He said, I ain't ever doing that again. So so you kind of get an idea that whatever it was, you know, I mean, he, he kind of felt the wrath of God, I think, from Kirby and the staff. So you just you, you hope those kids understand that and and just one, don't put their own lives at risk, but also the people around them. I mean, that's people in the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody can get hurt that, you know, had nothing to do with the situation. I only have two more quick things for you, but you work for a message board. I work for one part-time in the same, right? You kind of get a gauge of your customer base. And in that, you kind of a, uh, microcosm to some degree of the fan base. Georgia's coming off two national championships in a row. We just mentioned the schedule is like, all right, maybe one, one and a half games in November that matter. And then what, what is it like being like, 
from the fan base perspective of like, it's kind of turned into the saving of, do we make the college football playoff and go to Atlanta or bus type of thing? How, like, what has it been like covering that type of shift in fan base expectation? I think for a lot of people, it has been, you know, that, that first national championship, I think for a lot of people was a relief and a long time coming. You do it again. And I think the focus from what we see on the junkyard at dogs 24 seven has been the talk about making history. You know, if Georgia were to win it a third time, that'd be the first college football program to do that since Minnesota. I think like 1934 to 36. Everyone I, I, remembers that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've still got uh, the Golden <laughs> Gophers poster uh, in my bedroom from those days. But uh, I do think that there would be a disappointment if they don't do that. Now, there's going to be a disappointment uh, if they don't go undefeated and win a championship no matter what. There were people disappointed a few, you know, last week when they didn't land a five star safety uh, out of uh, Buford, Georgia, who everybody was convinced uh, was going to wind up going to Georgia. So, you know, fans will always find something to be mad about. I think. If they make the college football playoff, I think for the most part, fans would be satisfied no matter what. Uh, there def definitely will be uh, fans who are disappointed if they get that far and don't win the championship. But you have this kind of success. You're just sort of expected to keep it going no matter what. And uh, I know uh, it's it's certainly not going to be a fun Saturday night uh, whenever they lose for the first time since that Alabama SEC title game in 21 because uh, – uh, there's going to be a whole lot of angry people on the junkyard. And that was really the last thing I had for you. You keep a pretty keen eye on, you know, the other programs in the SEC. What's been interesting, like during that Saban run, you had the whole Hugh Freeze thorn in the side for a couple of years there. That got derailed by the NCAA and a myriad of other things. You had LSU pop up every now and again and give them a hell of a game. And then there's been very, very, a varying amount of challengers through the years. But in the East, I don't feel like Georgia has that or has had that. And kind of projecting toward the future, I have a guy that I do a regular uh, podcast with, Weldon Rodenberg, worked in recruiting for a while, has gotten out of the industry since. He's a big Billy Napier believer. He's not necessarily defending the results of last year or maybe how this year will go, but he's kind of committed to the Napier thing. But like outside of that, I can't even give you much of an argument unless I need to see it from Hypo again. I, like in the next two to three years, if there is an actual challenger that will dethrone Georgia from the penciled-in, pinned-in favorite in the SEC East every year, who do you think that will end up being? I mean, I think Tennessee's your top challenger, and I think we need to see it this year because uh, that Georgia game last year, you look at it, it was 27-13. to 13. Brian, I was at the game. It was not a two-touchdown game. I mean, Georgia got It was got a up. classic you got exposed for what you do offensively, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And it was a situation Georgia gets up in the third quarter. It starts raining, and then Georgia goes, all right, we're just going to take the air out of the ball and just hold on to it and run us out of it. Because I've seen a lot of you know people circling that game. I do think it's going to be a big game, but people are like, well, that was only a two-touchdown game last year. It not was the not case. It was not the case. Uh, I, but this year's game, I think, will show us a lot if Tennessee is that team. And then, yeah, I mean, I think Florida is the only other one, and, and I don't see it this year. And I do wonder how much of a leash Billy Napier gets because I think very highly of him. I thought he did a tremendous job at Lafayette and did a good job of sort of waiting for the right job to leave. I think Florida's a very good job, but, man, it seems like it took them a while to sort of get their ducks in a row. Outside of that, I feel comfortable saying it's not going to be South Carolina. Kentucky is a bit of a stretch to me because they really haven't played Georgia very close. Ten-point game last year and then a three-point game in Kirby's very first year, which, I mean, I think at this point doesn't even really count. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd say Tennessee's a top challenger and Florida's going to have to get something figured out and figured out quickly, uh, if they're going to be in that mix as well. I look forward to the emails you get from ULL media relations for calling them Lafayette. You know, they're very, very against that. So you'll have to repent for your sins there. Louisiana. I refuse to call them that as well, but I, I, I agree. I, I, I started to go Louisiana and then I just pivoted <laughs> to Lafayette. It's uh it's crazy though. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, something's going to change in the next three to five years. So that's kind of how this goes, but man, the path for Georgia to dominate the sec East for the next however many years name them is it seems as wide open as anything we've ever had in the most co- competitive conference in college football so it's going to be fascinating dude i really appreciate the time i kept you longer than i told you i would but i really really appreciate it dude good luck this year and uh we'll check in before that old miss georgia game absolutely anything you need you just let me know that's going to do it for our show today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this podcast. As always, we got a couple more opponent previews probably coming tomorrow. LSU and Arkansas. Going to check in with Weldon as well and get you a bunch more football content here in the coming weeks. couple player interviews on deck as well. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. As always, thanks to all our great sponsors. Please use them. Twisted Tea, Rent the Sip, Oxford, C Spire, LBs, Skybox Sports Picks. Glad you asked. Use them all. Football season's coming around the corner. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon.